0: Beloved, the message this morning from God's Word, you might consider it very much an introductory type of message. It seems to be a fitting day to go back and hear about Christianity 101. Why is the church so stuck on the adoration of one man, the man Jesus Christ? Beloved, this we shall hear and learn today. Let us pray upon the reading of God's word. Our gracious God and Father, we come before you again this morning in prayer. And we come this time, Lord, to again ask for your help. Upon this occasion of your word being read publicly and preached, as is your holy will, commanded among us by the prophets and the apostles, Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh God. And that the congregation gathered here today would also be pleasing in their hearing of it to you. I pray, Father God, that you would help one and all recognize herein this word the very voice of the Master, Jesus Christ. And that they would recognize by your Spirit the authority herein. And that they would be greatly helped in their understanding. And in their understanding, believing. And in their believing, obeying, and reforming their lives to their great joy and the great pleasure and honor of God. O Lord, give us all your help today. If we have not your help, O Father, we will not be helped. We cannot muster in ourselves the graces needed for this glorious privilege of hearing and sitting at the feet of our heavenly King. Help us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's turn now to Second Timothy. The reading is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10. The Apostle Paul. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is God's word. 15 years ago a unique book was published with the title My Bad it contains 25 years of public apologies and the appalling behavior that inspired them in fact that is the subtitle The two authors, Slansky and Sorkin, pulled together hundreds of apologies from some of the most public people in our country. Bill Clinton, Ted Turner, John McCain, Trent Lott, Jesse Jackson, Russell Crowe, Arnold Schwarzenegger. One of these many apologies, several are refreshingly honest. Many others are terrible. Weak. Fake. One of the more lame apologies came from a newspaper, the Lexington Herald-Leader of Kentucky. In 2004, they printed their apology on the front page. Forty years late. It has come to the editor's attention that the paper neglected to cover the civil rights movement. We regret the omission. One of the better apologies, however, the one that really caught my attention, came from a radio shock jock named Marconi. If you do not know, a shock jock is a radio personality who tries to be as offensive as legally possible. On his radio program, Marconi played the audio of an American named Nick Berg being beheaded in Iraq by Al Qaeda. Marconi then started laughing and laughing and joking and laughing more, all live on the air. He was fired the very day this took place. And later, when he apologized, Marconi said, I have become so numb to the horrific things that happen in this world that I sometimes forget there are still people who feel. I don't know if he knew it, but Marconi had said something quite profound something that echoes down through all the corridors of human history as a true testimony about the human race. Marconi confessed that by living among humans, he had become less human. He still, of course, had the physiology and the chemical makeup of a human being, but he was functioning less and less as a human being. He was forgetting what human beings need And he was forgetting what human beings ought to give one another if they are indeed human beings. Living in a world where human beings do horrific things, Marconi was becoming horrific himself. Beloved, I propose to you this morning that our entire human race has long been going the way of Marconi. The entire human race has been coming apart unraveling, deteriorating. We do not know anymore what human beings are for. We do not know what human beings need. We do not know what we owe to other human beings. And if we did, we would not be willing to give it. This condition of our human race was described by one of our apostles. He says, we are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Titus 3.5. But this was not always man's condition. When human beings were first created, God made them a little lower than the angels. God crowned man With glory and honor. Which means at the very beginning, man was without corruption, filled with light. The image of God in man was radiant. Man was without any shadow of sin in his being at the very beginning. In his original state of innocence, man knew the entirety of his being had come from God that he had no being except through God and in God. And because man knew from where his own being had come, he gave to God all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength. And man felt that this devotion was the most reasonable thing to give. Not only that, at the beginning man loved his neighbor. Adam loved Eve, his wife, and neighbor in the same way he loved himself is how he loved her. He wanted his neighbor to speak the truth to him, so he always told the truth to his neighbor. He wanted his neighbor to think the best of him, so he always thought the best of his neighbor. He wanted his neighbor to keep evil far from him, so he always kept evil far from his neighbor. This was man at the beginning. In the beginning, human beings were beautiful. They were whole. They were pure. There was no corruption. Our first parents knew they existed for the one who gave them being, the living God. And they knew they were blessed to exist for God, to glorify him and to enjoy him, and to help other humans glorify and enjoy him. Which means at the beginning, they knew what a human being was for. And they knew what they owed to other human beings. And being without corruption, they had the power and the will to give it. At the beginning. But this all fell apart. It all fell apart when sin entered the world. Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men Because all sinned. This means that when Adam first sinned against God, we all sinned against God as the offspring of that one man. Adam's willful refusal to conform to God's word was stamped upon our own nature. And from that point on, we would be born with the same spirit. Willful refusal to conform to God's word. And what did we get for this? We got nothing good. We earned death for this. For the wages of sin is death. Romans six twenty three. We all know death is separation from the living. But beloved, it is God who is the fountain of all living the fountain of all life, everywhere. When the human race, because of sin, came under the reign of death, our communion with God was severed. Body and soul became corrupt and cut off from God. The reign of death over us and in us, human beings, now prevents us from remembering that the entirety of our being is from God. We can scarcely think about God We can scarcely think about what we owe to God. The dullness of this is the reign of death in us. And not remembering from whom we have come and for whom we exist leaves us greatly disabled and depraved in our interest for one another. We lie to each other. We steal from each other. We murder each other. We abandon each other, even our own offspring. We slander each other. We ignore each other. We covet each other's property. We speak not of God to each other. We speak not to God for each other. And we approve for each other the very evil God forbids. Beloved, we are now the leading misanthropes on the earth. Misanthrope, a compound Greek word, misio, hate, anthropos, man. We are the leading haters of men. We are the leading haters and destroyers of human beings and human nature. Great is the power of sin and death in us. We have come from God, but now are so unlike God. It reminds me of what Aslan the Great Lion said to Prince Caspian in the children's book by C.S. Lewis You come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to lift the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. How could this happen? How could man fall? How could man who had been created with original righteousness, unspoiled communion with the living God, how could he fall from such a height into the darkness of death? Well, the answer is twofold. First, Man fell because he was never a divine being. Man was created a human being, a creature, a dependent. Therefore, he was always, even in his excellence at the beginning, he was always subject to change. Mutable. Always subject to falling from the glory of his original righteousness. And he did fall. Which leads to the second answer. Beloved, man fell because it was never the purpose of God for man to achieve his true destiny apart from Jesus Christ. It was never God's purpose for man to rise into a permanent and fixed state of communion with God, a constant and unchanging state of communion with God, a glory state of communion with God, it was never God's purpose for man to achieve such a state outside of union with Jesus Christ. And this is the Apostles' teaching at the heart of our second Timothy reading this morning. Hear verse 9 again. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Even before creation, it was God's purpose to lift our humanity up out of sin and up out of death to save it only through Jesus Christ. Man's salvation was not a solution worked out by God only after we had fallen. It was the very purpose of God before the ages began, says Paul. Which means the salvation of a chosen people from among the human race through Jesus Christ was always the purpose behind even the creation of the world. That's why we were brought into existence so that we could enter into the constancy of the glory state of communion that we would never fall from, but only enter it through Jesus Christ. Creation and humanity never had an earlier purpose than this purpose, to obtain the glory of Jesus Christ as a gift. Paul says God gave us He gave us the grace of salvation in Jesus Christ before this present age. Before God even called light into existence in Creation Week, God had already bestowed salvation on His people in Christ Jesus by decree. Beloved, this means something significant and wonderful and glorious. It means divine grace is the oldest. And the deepest foundation. God's saving grace precedes human existence in the decree. It even precedes man's fall into sin, which makes God's eternal electing love of a people in union with Jesus Christ the bedrock before all bedrock. This is all to the praise of his glorious grace. Those are the words of Paul in another place, Ephesians 1.6. As he explains the same doctrine in Ephesians 1, this is all to the praise of his glorious grace. That's why this is the way it is. Therefore, any who partake in this exclusive restoration of humanity by eternally decreed grace will find man's boasting is absolutely Absurd. Therefore, we know that wherever men are still boasting, even in their religious works, they are yet not partakers. They are not partakers of the restoration of humanity through the eternally decreed grace. A humanity restored by eternally decreed grace will not be fixated on the works it has done, nor on the works it has yet to do, nor on the works it hopes to do. A humanity restored by eternally decreed grace is soaking in that grace, which took all things under divine care before there were even things. But not only this, a truly restored humanity will not keep away from other human beings because they do not have the right works. You see it in our verse 9. If you are truly partaking in the restored humanity that was laid down in the eternal decree of grace that would come into the world through the one man, Jesus Christ, if you are a true partaker of it, you know that it is not by works. Therefore, it is not even by the works of men whose works hurt you. And you will not abandon them. You will not move away from them. You will not close them out because it is not their works that will lift them up out of the ruins. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. A humanity restored in Jesus Christ by the eternal decreed grace will move toward the world with peace on its lips and not rage on its lips. The message of the church to the world is not get your works together, Bub. Catch up with us. You're way behind. No, the message of the church to the world is look with me, gaze with me at the works of Jesus Christ. Look with me, gaze with me into eternity past and hear about this eternally decreed grace to lift us out of the ruins to the heights of eternal glory communion through Jesus Christ. Of course, the Christian has works to do. Of course, good works is part of our portfolio, but the good works of the Christian. Only multiply and hang weighty like fruit on a tree when that Christian is gazing at the sun, not at the tree. The sun, spell it both ways, if you will. Now consider with me a moment longer this idea that humanity could be restored through human works, which Paul denies. Many... Religions of the world promote this and many false imitations of Christianity promote this. That humanity can be restored through the works of men, even the religious works of men. Paul denies it. Christ denies it. The apostles and prophets deny it. But it is proliferating in the religions of men. It is vividly rejected in our text. We are saved not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Athanasius has a brilliant section about this in his famous 5th century treatise on the Incarnation. Athanasius says, Was God to demand repentance from men for their transgression? You might say that that was worthy of God and argue further that as through the transgression they became subject to corruption, so through repentance they might return to incorruption again. Right there, Athanasius has described so much serious but false religious discourse. Let's tell men to repent, to stop doing evil works and start doing good works, That is so false, but so serious-sounding, isn't it? Athanasius goes on to say this kind of religious speech would be a colossal failure. Why? Because, quote, repentance does not recover men from their corrupt nature. All that it does is to make them cease from sinning. Had man's ruin been a case of a trespass only and not of a subsequent corruption— Repentance would have been well enough, but once transgression had begun, men came under the power of corruption. The only solution, Athanasius goes on to say, is for us to be united to the one whose incorruptible humanity pays both the whole debt of our corruptions and carries us up into his incorruptible life. This one man is Jesus Christ. Crucified and risen. Now let us understand something about the restoration of our humanity through Jesus Christ. God's decree in eternity that we be saved was not all that was needed to be done. The decree guaranteed that all that needed to be done would get done, but the decree itself was not the doing of it all. What was decreed before the present age had to be done within the present age. And that is what Paul speaks of in verse 10. If verse 9 is Paul speaking about the age before the present age, verse 10 is his speaking about the present age. Paul says the grace of salvation now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now that word now is huge. It does not refer to that age before the ages began. It does not refer to the age in which the decree was decreed. Spoken of in verse nine. Now in verse 10 refers to the present age. The age of creation and providence, and history. It is now, in this present age, that the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus has taken place. The grace of the eternal decree has now been manifested through his appearing. This is all of Paul's language for describing the birth of the pre-existing Christ. He appears. He isn't made. He appears. He appears for he was always there and he had not appeared yet. He was the invisible God, but he has now appeared. The eternal Son, who has always existed in the Godhead, equal in power and glory with the Father and the Spirit he, the eternal son, has appeared in the very age, in the very world in which humanity has ruined itself. And he has appeared as a man. He has taken our flesh. Though always and forever in the form of God, he humbled himself and took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Philippians 2. Here's how John the Apostle describes the same thing that Paul squeezes into John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Word, the eternal Son, existed before anything was made. In fact, he is the one who made it. And then verse 14 of the same gospel, John 1: And the Word, flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul's way of communicating in verse 10 that the eternal Son had taken flesh is found in the victory phrase that he uses in the second half of verse 10, who abolished death. How did the eternal son abolish death, which is a feature of fallen human life? He took upon himself our very nature, uniting to his divine nature a human nature without in any way ceasing to be divine. He took to himself a full human nature, and that he offered in death for those deserving death. He who appeared abolished death. The language here is like the downfall of a king. Not an unjust king. Death reigned, Paul says in Romans 5. Death, like a king had justly ascended his throne. Death was found reigning over sinners, always justly threatening them, always justly collecting from them what they owed. They owed the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. They owed separation from the living God who is life and incorruption. But Christ appeared to abolish death for his elect people because in his death, he satisfies death. He gives the reigning king death all that was ever owed to him by sinful human beings. Because Christ had no sin of his own, all the sins of the elect church of God, all your sins and my sins, could be appointed to him And he gave death, all the death you owed, death. And there's nothing more to give to death. That's why death for now, for all the children of God, is but a door, a sleep. Christ has perfumed the grave for us. Beloved, Christ has appeared to abolish death. Let us not assign to him foolish titles and leave out this one. For no matter what title you assign to him, it becomes foolish if you cover over his victory death. If you call him an educator, an example, a philosopher, a great teacher, all of those titles become foolishness. They become absolutely damning to you if you leave out this title. Abolisher of death. Bring this title forth and all the others become right and grand and true. For he abolished death to be your teacher. He abolished death to be your example. But beloved, he abolished death first because he is your savior. Christ gave to death all that we humans owed to death. And he gave it the only way death could be justly satisfied, in a human body. For all our sins were committed in our human being, in the ruins of our human being. And he, taking a human being to himself, offered it up to shut the mouth of death forever against his church. Praise be to God that the saving mission of Christ was to abolish death. But Paul says, Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This, of course, is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For in him there was no And therefore his body did not see corruption. Though he was truly dead and he remained in the ground for three days to testify to his true human death to all the church in the world, he was raised up on the third day by the power of God. Raised up into life, the life of God, but raised up with him our own nature. The nature that he assumed in the virgin's womb, he has never laid aside. He retains it for eternity. He is seated today by resurrection power at the right hand of God in your human nature as a testimony to you who have a human nature that your human nature too in him shall enter the immortality that he has already entered. And he has brought this all to light He has unveiled it to us, unveiled it to a people who were living in a land of darkness, unveiled it to a people who were crawling around on all fours in the moral ignorance of their unbelief and rebellion. He has unveiled that he has brought it to light so that in the gospel, we have seen how zealous he is to retain our human being and not cast it away. Strike from your heart, beloved, this Gnostic idea That it's just our souls that fellowship and commune with God in in eternity. Christ has testified to you that is a lie. He does not despise the material world. He created it. He does not despise our human being. He has restored it. Praise be to God. Now I know I do this once in a while. And maybe I do it too often. I end up preaching the first verse last. Here I'm doing it again today. Verse 8. Please look at verse 8 with me. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I'm focusing for a moment with you on the word ashamed. Who is it that wants to make the church ashamed of the restoration of humanity through the one man, Jesus Christ? Who is it that wants the church of Jesus Christ and the wee little new believer to be ashamed of this restoration of humanity good news? Beloved, it is not the angels of God who want us to be ashamed. It is not the heavenly population of saints who want us to be ashamed. But it is the devil and the world and your own sinful heart that wants you to be ashamed. Think with me for a moment. There was a reason Marconi was laughing at Nick Berg's brutal death. Marconi wanted people like Nick Berg to feel ashamed. You are so stupid for working in Iraq. You are so stupid to be traveling across the world to help those people. You are so stupid to get yourself caught. You are so stupid for crying and screaming when Al-Qaeda held a knife to your throat. You are so stupid to get your head cut off for no good reason. Marconi wanted all the people like Nick Berg to be ashamed of that kind of life. His mocking laughter had a deeper purpose. His mocking laughter to make men ashamed was to indeed puff and polish Marconi's own self-righteousness. His cynicism was the source of his justification, that he was all right, that he had lived an acceptable life because he could see through everything that other people couldn't see through. His self-righteousness was his cynicism. It was his gospel. And he needed other people to be ashamed that they weren't as cynical as him. Beloved, the world wants you in the same way to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The The world wants to mock you and laugh at you and make you feel stupid for sitting in the church of Jesus Christ, for adoring and worshiping the babe of Mary. The world wants to make you feel stupid for thinking that human beings need saving. The world wants you to think you're stupid for thinking Jesus destroyed death. And why does the world want you to be ashamed of this Glorious gospel of grace because the world, beloved, is puffing and polishing their self-righteousness because they want to tell themselves they are going to be okay in their unbelief. They are going to be okay in their atheism. They are going to be okay in their evil doing that nothing matters. They will be okay. And they want you to be ashamed. Beloved, if anybody, if any one man who ever walked the earth had the right to be ashamed for being involved in the restoration of humanity, it would be Jesus Christ. But as it says in Hebrews 2, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He was not ashamed to be stripped naked and to be crucified to a cross, to give death everything you owed to death. Beloved, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. For the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only good news that can bring human beings out of the ruins.